0: Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Going Deep with Aaron Watson. It's my pleasure to be in your earbuds this evening, afternoon or morning, whenever you're listening to this. This is a pretty exciting episode for me. I got to interview Kevin Kelly. For those of you who are podcast junkies or interested in tech futurism, things like that, Kevin Kelly will be a familiar name. For those of you who do not know who he is, uh, he's the co-founding editor of Wired Magazine, a known futurist interest uh, called by Tim Ferriss, the most interesting man in the world, an all-around, well-educated, thoughtful guy who's published multiple books. I know uh, that some listeners out there have, have talked to me about their excitement about having him on the show and what he's meant to them as an author. I need to issue a special thank you first to Mike Dariano for helping me land this interview, helping me uh, connect with Kevin to make the interview possible, and also a special thank you to John Craig, a good friend and buddy who helped me prepare for the interview, told me what to read, helped me with a question or two, and is just another great dude that you should all be connecting with. I'll be linking to their information in the show notes for this episode, but I don't want to waste your time anymore and get right to the good stuff. So here is my interview with Kevin Kelly. After listening to the intro, I just realized I missed an important point. Kevin came on the show to talk about his new book called The Inevitable. It talks about the future and the technological forces that are going to drive our growth as a species economically and in many different forms. So we start off with that and spend a lot of time talking about the book. So to just provide a little context from the jump, we're talking about his book, The Inevitable. So, Kevin, thank you so much for coming on my show. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure and privilege. Thank you for having me. Uh, I want to l- just start off uh, by talking about the name of the book, The Inevitable, Understanding the 12 Technological Forces That Will Shape Our Future. And, and you talk about these forces using 12 different present participles. So, ending with an ING, screening, remixing, cognifying, among many others. And what is Interesting or, or maybe uh, perplexing for some people is when you call something inevitable. It seems unstoppable. It seems like this future is something that we might not have much control over how uh, over the outcome. Uh, and I just wanted to give you a chance to maybe elaborate a little bit on the title and how much control we as a species have over these outcomes over the next couple
1: decades. That's a really fair question. Um, the analogy I like to use is uh, if you imagine rain falling in a valley and the path of a particular droplet of rain as it falls towards the river at the bottom of the valley is completely unpredictable and it's uh something that you could kind of control but its general direction downward is inevitable and i uh, am talking about the aspects of technological systems that make it lean in certain directions that kind of give it a gravity that are working at the level of the general direction and not the specific or particulars. So I would say in a certain sense, um, telephones were inevitable. Kind of in any civilization that invented electricity, they're going to make telephones. But the iPhone is not inevitable, not predictable. The internet was' inevitable, but Twitter wasn't or the, the character of the internet was not inevitable, something we have a choice over. We have a option of whether it's national or international, whether it's open or closed. And those choices make a huge difference. And so the character of the specifics and the particulars of um, the products and services are, are in no way inevitable. We have a lot of control about them and they matter a lot to us. What is, ine- is inevitable are the kind of large scale forms that keep reoccurring again and again and those are the leanings, the the tilts, that I try to describe in the book. So once you have uh, switches and chips and you make computers, you're going to invoke copies. It, it, this, this system wants to copy things. You can't stop the copying. That's inevitable. And so you have to kind of work with the copies. And that's sort of what I'm talking about in the book is these large verbs, these present participles, which um, – are going to be occurring, whether we like it or not, as long as we have these technologies. And the particulars, though, the character of it, we have a lot of a choice. And that character makes a big difference to us.
0: Absolutely. I think that one that is on a lot of people's minds for a multitude of reasons is artificial intelligence. And it's very easy to kind of get caught up in this dystopian future where artificial intelligence is unmanageable outside the bounds of What we can control, Uh, it gets away from us in some, you know, Hollywood examples. But you take a much more positive—I would say—throughout the book, you you take a very positive outlook on most of these technological advances. But particularly, I was struck by um, artificial intelligence, and I was just interested to give you a chance to elaborate on how artificial intelligence can change the way we work because it is going to displace a huge amount of jobs, it's going to take over a lot of the responsibilities that we assign people now. But instead of that necessarily being our downfall, you see that much more
1: as an opportunity for evolution and freedom of choice. Yes. Jobs are really bundles of different tasks. And many of those tasks can be automated and will be automated by artificial intelligence, artificial smartness, machine learning, and as those tasks are handed over to the bots, they will redefine our own jobs. And the kinds of tasks that we will give to the bots are those that can be specified in terms of efficiency or productivity. And so if, if, a, if, if a task or job is easily requires uh, that it be efficient, whether it's manual labor or, or knowledge work, those are the kinds of tasks that are going to be given over to the robots. What we're left with as humans are the kinds of things where efficiency is not so critical. And that includes a broad swath of, of, of tasks like um, science, which is by definition not efficient because it's built on one failure, failure after another, one disaster after another, one inefficient exploration after another. The same thing with innovation, which is also dependent on the fact that things um, don't work and if, and if you're only making things that work, you're not really innovating. Art is inefficient. Human relationships are inefficient. And so all these inefficiencies are the domain of, of, of humans and the things that we can uh, specify and in terms of efficiency go to the bots. So, 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 productivity is for robots. And what um, we're also doing is, is we're using these new technologies to invent new desires, new wants, new things that we um, didn't know that, that were even possible before, that that becomes our new jobs. And we will, in the beginning, not be able to specify them, and then eventually we will, and then we can give them to the robots. So in a certain sense, our, our, our future is that we're going to be inventing all these new things, and then eventually we'll figure out how to do them, and then we'll give them to the bots. So so there are many more new ways of doing things and living and new desires than there are desires that we have already made. I mean, the, the unknown is much bigger than the known. And that means that we have an unlimited number of new jobs that we'll be um, inventing, And they're not all just cerebral. They're not all just intellectual. Many of them are jobs that have to do with human relations, human experience, being human. And so I I think there's going to be this incredible renaissance of new work that is going to be enabled by AI and this artificial smartness. I know personally, I've started to
0: experiment with an artificial intelligence that schedules meetings for me. It's called Amy from x.ai. I've mentioned it a couple times previously on the show, but it's been... Eye-opening to just see how much time that can save me, and how nice it is to be able to just hand off this job. That it's not exciting to schedule a meeting with someone and go back and forth through email eight times to try to figure out a time and date that works for everyone, and to just be able to hand that off and spend my time doing other things and other creative endeavors is definitely freeing. To maybe play a little devil's advocate or, or reference people who do play devil's advocate, there are artificial intelligence alarmists out there, uh, Stephen Hawking, Elon Musk, other folks who kind of sound this alarm that we need to be fearful of AI and not and, and see it as a greater threat than it is maybe an assistant or something that can can take these more menial tasks off our hands. When you hear their arguments, or I don't know how much you interact with them directly, how do you interpret their views and, and where do you kind of push back on some of their points?
1: So people like Elon, is interesting because Elon is actually investing into AI himself. And um, I think his point, and Stephen Hawking's as well, is that um, there is a remote possibility of this sort of uh, intelligence explosion that um, could get out of hand and that you have um, some rogue super intelligence that takes over and wants to get rid of us um i i, I think the possibilities of that are, are are very 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 remote but they're but they're greater than zero all right i mean there's he, his point uh, Elon's point is that even if it's like one tenth of a percent it is what they call an existential threat meaning that it's you know it's it's a serious enough that we should at least consider it so i i would say that that we should consider it as a remote possibility and not ignore it, but we shouldn't be afraid of it. And, and that it's also um, very far off. And Elon and, and, and Steven would say, well, that's true, but that, that we should begin to address the remote possibility now. And that I would agree with, meaning that what we want to do is we want to embed into these um, creations our values so that, so that we're, we're we're in synchrony that we're in that we're in um, in unity about what we what we value in the world like we devalue diversity we devalue we value um, people, uh, individual rights and things like that and so um, I I think that is something that we have to do with these artificial creations that we're making, which is we want them to be ethical and moral. And um, there are programs right now to try and encode into self-driving cars a sense of ethics so that they have some priority of knowing whether they should give preference to the passenger or the pedestrians, you know, in an accident and things like that. These are very difficult questions and require us humans to be very clear about our ethics and morality in order to transfer them to the machines, but in fact, it turns out that we're not clear. We, we don't have a very good idea. Our, our ethics are not very consistent and not very deep. And so in a curious way, and this may be part of what Elon and, and Hawking are trying to do, is in trying to teach the machines, we're actually going to make ourselves better. We're actually going to, I mean, the way I say it is, is that the AIs and the robots will help us to become better humans, because in trying to, trying to give them our best... We will be better in the way that parents can become better when they try to teach their children. kind of want to switch things up a little bit and talk about another
0: part of the book that I found really interesting was the idea that ownership is going to be on the decline and we're going to be focused much more on access to different goods, services. Uh, moving forward. And the idea that folks won't necessarily be as inclined to own a home or own a car, but services like an Airbnb or an Uber would kind of enable us to to drift more to our roots as hunter gatherers, as nomadic people that are less tied to a specific location. Can you elaborate a little bit on What else is allowing us to do this outside of these two specific
1: companies? And maybe I have a couple more questions after that. The the basic fundamental driver is this almost explosion of different varieties of communication, which allow us as humans to collaborate and coordinate at greater distances and in higher dimensions, greater speed, to make things together, in, in, often in real time, in ways that were not previously possible. And one of the things that this communication technology can do is it can deliver works and creations and things that we make anywhere in the world very, very quickly and almost instantly in terms of like a digital thing like a movie or a book or music in such a way that we can reach for it and have it almost as if it was something that we owned much as if it was something we had purchased and had in our room and um, and so this technology allows us to have access to things and that access can in many ways be superior to ownership because ownership besides rights it also has many responsibilities and duties and it, it turns out that the the technology that we've been inventing being able to do 3d printing and uh, even physical delivery at much higher speeds allow us to in many ways access even for physical products and so all this technology is moving us to um, a moment where we can simulate many of the attributes of owning something by simply getting access to it and you know uber and airbnb are kind of the first examples but you can extend that to almost anything and say well if you could if you could some ways deliver this instantly anywhere in the world. Could we shift the the model from having to own it to uh, having access to it? And it's not just that you have that you get it, but also that you can get rid of it too. So this is idea of designing things to be disassembled or reused or recycled. And so the idea is that something appears when you want it. You summon it. It appears, and then it goes away when you're done using it. And that model is actually much much more feasible for many things because of advances in digital technology, 3D printing, design for disassembly, instant, overnight, you know, within uh, physical delivery, drone delivery, whatever. All these things are conspiring to make that, you know, this loss of geography uh, a real thing for real products at a very cheap price. And, and, and I think that the kind of desire to take in, an Uber for X is is not at all misplaced because we're just be- beginning to figure out how we can turn a noun, a product, into a service, which is the other way of looking at what you're doing. You're, you're, you're taking something physical and you're saying, this is just really a service that delivers this benefit on demand. And so the, it's no longer a physical noun. It's actually a verb. It's a service. And that is um, part of this ongoing trend of dematerialization and um, ubiquitous communication that are feeding this so this so, so we're at the beginning of this and you can kind of go down the list yourself of all these weird things that you wouldn't think would be able to turn into a service but that's that's what we're doing and and as I was reading the chapter we really focused on this
0: and and just you know related to previous episodes, episodes of the show, Kevin. We've had a number of people in the world of finance on talking about how you invest, how you save, principles like that. And what's curious to me is particularly home ownership, but just in general ownership, possessions, is how we've defined wealth for the last century at the very least, but for really a long time. And as this trend accelerates and moves forward. I'm curious what your thoughts are on the analysis of wealth, how we'll think about these type of principles if you're not building equity as you pay off your mortgage, if you're not acquiring these other assets that are maybe going to be part of some sort of retirement fund, or however it may be applied in the future. Do you think that that is going to shift in the way we kind of think about our financial advice is going to shift to correspond with that trend?
1: That's a very profound question, because in as you, as you know, ownership is sort of the foundation of capitalism. And if you have a shift away from ownership, then that does affect the very nature and understanding of capitalism I, I would say a couple of things one is i have a scenario in the book about what life would be like for some young persons who didn't own anything and i and i give a caveat at the beginning that i think that's very unlikely that anybody would live not owning anything i think the 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 pattern is much more going to be that people will have will care about something enough to own it because in fact in order for this um system to work like uber somebody has to own a car so it's just not everybody has to, to, to do it and so there will be some people who owns what is something they care deeply about and maybe use it as a business whereas you know the other 90 percent don't have to own it so the ownership of particular things are are kind of um concentrated in some senses rather than being um distributed and but what people own will always shift by person by person business by business and so um there are just too many things that we're going to be making in the next 50 years for everybody to own one of everything. There's just not enough room. There's not enough bandwidth in our own brains. We 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 just we, we won't. I mean, we just simply won't be able to own one of everything. And so, what people you will own something, but not everything. And so, the most of the things that you will use, you won't own, but you will own some things. And so, I think. Um, Nonetheless, I think there is a shift away from um, the significance of wealth in terms of being, um, you know, say these uh, precious, uh, rare commodities like, you know, like a house, like uh, gold, to I, I think um, the kinds of, of shifts that we're seeing, which is people having um, shares in things and that type of ownership where you are. You're owning a, uh, a process rather than a a product uh, you're, you're, you're owning this process which is what a, a business is having a share in that having um, having a stake in it I think that's where the wealth has been shifting and will continue to shift is is that um, you have a, a stake both again both rights and responsibilities in Ownership in the sense of uh, a stake in it, and it's not a it's not a physical thing. It's it's a stake in the process. I hear you.
0: I uh, want to start wrapping up here, but I have one last question before we tell people how to connect with you mm-hmm. and you issue the personal challenge to the audience. With these trends as they're developing, you know. These are things that both you and I are going to live into and, and see the formation of. But there's a next generation that is really going to be handed the reins of this society in the coming decades. The the folks younger than me may be born in this decade that we're living in now. And I'm curious, as, as someone who thinks a lot about the effects, the ever expanding effects that technology is having on our society, on our culture, if you had the authority or the ability to be responsible for the education of children born in this decade and and, and thinking about the curriculum, the core subjects, core skills uh, that you'd want to be teaching them, how important maybe physical activity would be in in their curriculum to take advantage and thrive in this future That you see coming. Uh, I'm curious what things you in particular would prioritize uh, as part of the education process, and if there's anything that you would uh, be rushing to throw out.
1: It's a very deep um, question and assignment, and I think um, I would emphasize what I call a techno literacy and the skills about um, learning. So the meta skills about learning how to learn. I think that's really the. Um, I think learning knowledge in the upper grades is is not really that important Uh, I think in the lower grades learning character skills disciplines are 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 the main event and in the university level I think it's um, has to shift to um, project-based learning entirely but in say in the high school area it's It's about the the meta skills of learning how to learn because if you can learn how to learn and you can learn how to do critical thinking and you can learn the general technoliteracies about always being a newbie, always having to um, be ready to uh, learn new things. I I, I think that is really the only enduring skill that is teachable because all these other stuff that you're learning is changing it's being outmoded it's being obsolete or you can just ask a machine and it'll tell you the answer um you just google it and so I, I i think um to me the core sets is learning how to learn which is a very deep and 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 itself would take years to really master and learning how to think critically in in a world where we've moved away from the um that we get from the authors of books to a networked sense of truth, which is, you know, you you go on the internet and there's a fact, and then there's somewhere there's an anti-fact and for every expert, there's a counter-expert, so you have to assemble um, what you know in a in a way that's kind of networked in the sense that this this source is reliable only because these other reliable sources verify it which is only reliable because these other reliable sources verify it so it's it's a much more challenging way to have to understand something but that's the kind of meta skill that we have to be teaching in school rather than you know a a lot of knowledge because the knowledge can easily be gained by asking a machine i think um being able to keep learning Understand how you learn in particular, because we all learn differently. Maximizing, optimizing your style of learning, and being able to do that all your life—that is, if you can do that, you're, you know, you're, you, you're made. You're, you're good. <laughs>
0: I couldn't agree more. I I, I love the point of us being perpetual newbies and as each software update comes out, having to adjust and learn and just accepting that as the status quo as opposed to trying to fight against it. Uh, Kevin, thank you so much for coming on this show. Definitely going to encourage people to go check out the book, The Inevitable, Understanding the 12 Technological Forces That Will Shape Our Future, and also some of the previous books, What Technology Wants, um, among others. Very enlightening. Definitely gave me a confidence and a positive outlook on some of these futures that, uh, that are outlined for us. If people want to learn more about you, Kevin, connect with you, learn more about the book, what digital coordinates can we direct them to?
1: Um, My website, which are my initials, kk.org, I have um, the book page there, there's lots of other stuff, all my blogs, uh, my other interests like True Films, which is the best documentaries that you can watch, Um, Cool Tools, which is about the uh, one great cool tool we we recommend every weekday, Um, Silver Cord, my graphic novel about angels and robots, all that kind of stuff is is there or pointed there, so kk.org.
0: Awesome. As always, that will be linked to in the show notes, com slash podcast. Very easy to find. Uh, Kevin, I want to give you the mic one last time so that you can take it away with your personal challenge for the audience.
1: Yeah, I think think learning to be full of gratitude about your life, your position, whatever you are in the world, um, it's something I like to cultivate. And um, I like to um, pay things forward by sharing and investing into others. So the the challenge I think is to take a hundred dollars in in the next year and um, invest it into somebody who cannot pay you back at all in a certain sense. That, that that, uh, you don't expect it to come back. And there are some sites like Kiva and other micro loans or even gift organizations that will, t- that will take that $100 and give it or, or, or recycle it or loan it to people in the developing world to whom $100 is a great business um, loan or gift and that they can use to build a business. And uh, in, in the terms of Kiva, they actually will um, give a loan and have it repaid. And then you can get to reloan that to someone over and over again. Again, to to great effect. It's a hugely highly levered uh, means of helping real people in the real world um, grow their own business for just even $100. And so go to Kiva, go to um, Hyfer Project, go to a number of different sites that will take the $100 and amplify it around the world. You may or may not get your money back. You can choose whether you want to or not. But that tiny investment paying forward will have huge effects on the entire world. I love it. I actually listened, uh, went went to a talk with Jessica
0: Jackley, the co-founder of Kiva, and not only hearing her story, but just... Uh, her excitement over the impact that these type of microloans and microinvestments can make. Uh, It's definitely something that gets you fired up. So we'll link to Kiva as well in the show notes. Uh, But one last time, Kevin, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah,
1: it's really been my pleasure. Thanks for your great questions and for your interest in my book. We just went deep with Kevin Kelly. I hope everyone out there has a great day. Thank you.
0: Hey, thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed the interview and learned a lot. I encourage you to check out Kevin Kelly's writing if you get the opportunity. And also to make sure you hit that subscribe button if you've not already done so. If you are a longtime listener, I would it would really mean a lot to me if you headed over to the website and signed up for our once-monthly newsletter. I know that uh, email newsletters and people's inboxes in general are getting more and more stuffed as the weeks and months go by, but this is a month- once monthly report way to stay up to date on some of the most popular episodes of this show other great podcast episodes that i've found great links from the internet and it's only coming at you once a week so it's gonna it's gonna be valuable you're gonna get some uh, some good media consumption out of it instead of just crappy videos on facebook and uh hopefully trust me to do a little bit of digital content curation for you so head over there enter your email address and feel free to tweet at me if you do so at aaronwatson59 Hope you have a great day and stay safe out there.